Welcome everyone to Seek Go Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and in ministry. Today, our guest, we, we're going to do a deep dive into leadership. He's got background in the sales arena. He's uh, uh, a speaker, uh, uh, a keynote speaker, and, um, I, you know, this is maybe code for someone who's of a mature age, but been around a while and has done a lot and seen a lot, so we're going to have a rich, deep conversation about all types of things. Before I get to that, I do want to remind you, the listener, that my novel, Coach, A Story of Success Redefined, has been released at the time that this uh, this is released. It's on Amazon, all the places you could order books. Go check it out. Getting some great reviews, great feedback, and I'm excited to get this novel, this leadership business novel, out to the world. So go check it out, and uh, I think you'll be blessed by it. I'm excited to uh, to get it in your hands. So uh, look forward to hearing your feedback on that. Today we've got Ron Carr, and he's got one of these bios that's a mile long. I'm just going to simply say he's a keynote speaker, CEO, best-selling author, and author of the recent book Velocity Mindset, and that's going to be something that we're really going to discuss today. So many other things on his bio. We'll get into it in just a moment. But, Ron, welcome to Seek Go Create. Uh, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great today. And uh, at the time of recording, I think I shared earlier, getting ready for the birth of second grandchild. And, man, that's such a cool thing. So excited that's about that. That's really special. That's really special. Wishing you and your family all the best. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, all right, Ron, let's get started with the question I asked first. And it's just kind of a get-to-know-you question because we all have these bios that are awesome. But if you and I meet somewhere and I just ask the question, what do you do, what's your typical answer when somebody asks you, what does Ron do? It usually is around helping organizations build high-performing sales cultures. Um, and I say sales culture. Culture is kind of a word that's been overused a little bit. But, you know, everybody, when they think about increasing sales, they just think about the sales team. But it's the organization that has to support that team also. It's the C-suite that has to make sure the strategy is sound and they all buy into it and that all of the departments are going to be supporting it. So that's why it's really about a culture. What do we do and how do we get out of our way so that we can grow the business effectively? That's what I do for a living. Hmm. All right. So that, that gives me a lot of info just to kind of pounce on right away. Uh, and I have read your book. I read your book in the last couple of days. So we're going to get into Velocity Mindset. That name is, it intrigues me in so many ways. And I enjoyed the book. So we're going to dive into that. But you brought up sales and you brought up culture, two words that I think uh, we don't always put together. You just did it. So um, give us a grade. Let's look around the uh, the horizon right now. We're recording this in uh, you know, late spring, almost summer 2022. I'm not sure when people are listening in. We've just come out of a pandemic event or, you know, all those things. There's just a lot of stuff going on. How would you grade business, the world in general, on how well they're doing with sales cultures out there? Um, probably a C plus. C plus. You know, when I was at Georgia Tech, I would have loved to get a C plus, but I'm not sure you gave that with a glowing. <laughs> I don't think that's that great, is it? Well, for me, a C plus is below an A minus or below a B plus is what I always shot for. So, so why, yeah, is, why I mean, a C plus? Why a C plus? Give it. To, tell us like it is. Let's go ahead and because, uncover what's going on. 
besides being a keynote speaker, I'm actually brought in and, and retained by clients over a period of time. And invariably, not everybody's working on the same cylinder, right? So there's friction in the organization. Now, there's good friction in an organization, too, because, you know, you want to be at the top of your toes. But, you know, more people are operating out of a self-focused mindset than a customer-focused mindset. Now, in an organization, I'm talking about two kinds of customers. There's actually four, but here I'm talking about two. The actual customer who buys your products and services and the internal customer, the employee who has to carry out the tasks to meet the expectations and exceed the expectations of your customers. So uh, I do a lot of work in manufacturing and also in, in technical sales. And invariably when people or in packaging sometimes, uh, you know, sales executives are coming in with proof of concepts for a new idea, a new way of doing something that immediately is being poo-pooed by, let's say, engineering or by uh, production because it's a, it's a major change or they don't understand why they have to do it or they don't have time to look at it. And the way it's handled sometimes doesn't support the sales executive in terms of showing that they want the business and they're going to go out and get it. Um, and the reason why that's happening is not because those people internally are trying to sabotage the salesperson, far from it. It's just that they themselves are, let me put it this way, most of us operate at a task and not purpose. This is going to be the best way to explain it. Tasks meaning I got my to-do list, I got these projects, I got to get get it done. And sometimes we're so busy working on our task list all day long, at the end of the day, we didn't have time for lunch, but then we're a little disappointed because we're asking ourselves, with all the work I did, how did I really move the needle? All right? Organizations that would get a, bit, a better than C-plus grade in the culture are the ones that operate on purpose. What are we trying to achieve, the outcome? Whether it's a market position, a goal in the type of relationship you want with a certain customer, whatever it is, what is the outcome? Because that outcome invariably drives your decision-making process. And if you're driven by outcome and not task, you will be making better decisions. And you'll do a better job of prioritizing what tasks you should really be working on that are germane to that outcome. So when I'm brought in by organizations, the first place I start is with the C-suite, small, mid-sized businesses especially. Why? Because invariably, not everybody in the C-suite is on the same page of how to move forward and the purpose. They think they are, but they're not. And when we spend time getting them on the same page, sometimes that conversation can take from an hour to a couple of days. But that is the most critical piece of work I could do in that type of relationship because once they get clear, everything else falls into place. So what, but when it's not clear, I'm sorry, when it's not clear, that's when you get resistance and that's when you get people working at competing odds and that's when the culture is impacted. Right. And, and the thing that's so interesting to me, I, I'm, I'm an engineer by background, but I've moved into sales, leadership type training and all that. And I, and I was actually thinking about an engineering firm that's a client of mine that they are very strong engineering, but they are very weak in their, you know, business expansion and sales and marketing arena. And to me, it seems as if we've just baked in natural conflict. You brought up self-focused. I mean, really, to some extent, almost all of us are self-focused. 
And and I do wonder if sometimes we've just structured organizations. This sounds real negative. Sorry. I actually can bounce. I could be real optimistic and real negative. This is going to go negative fast. <laughs> Ron, it's almost like we've baked in conflict with the sales team, the HR, the legal, the C-suite, and engineering and product you know, development, production, and all that. And so is it is it just one of these things where we're we're fighting an uphill battle just right just from the way we've structured some of our organizations? Yeah, so I, I don't know if baked in is the word I would use because when you baked it in, it's, that's on purpose. It means you're baking a cake, you know, you're putting the ingredients together and you're going to just bake it the way you want it. I don't think those issues are baked in. I don't think people, it's an intended thing that people wanted. I think it's a result based on how people operate and the actions they take. So um, one of the things that we look for in high-performing sales executives or even in executives, you know, we do assessments, and uh, one of the traits that we look for is the trait of empathy, okay? Empathy is a really important trait for salespeople and executives. Why? And we look for at least an 8 out of a 10 score. We don't want more than an 8, by the way, because if you're too empathetic, then you're not protecting the house, you're not protecting your cause and all the other stuff. But the reason why empathy is so important, because if I'm if I'm trying to empathize with what you're going through, that gives me a different mindset from how I operate. And that means I'm going to be asking you questions because I got to find out and I want to find out because of I have empathy. I want to find out what's what you're dealing with, what's holding you back. That is so important because. You know, the whole deal of influence, let's make, let's just break down influence in its basic form, okay? There's two parts to influence, heart and mind. Most people go straight to the mind, meaning they're debating, is it the right thing? They're comparing it with everything else. That is the worst place to start. That's the how you're going to do something. That doesn't get the attention and it doesn't make the deal. What makes the deal if someone's going to support you is the emotional connection in the heart. And that's where the empathy comes in, finding out where you're going, what are your challenges, and then presenting. Here's the key. The key formula for influence is if you really want to have influence, it's to present what you can do in context to what's important to the person you're talking to. But instead, whenever we try to influence an employee or sell somebody without the empathy, all we do is self-focus. We talk about all the 18 things this thing is going to do for you of which 16 probably mean nothing for you. So we lost your attention. We're not even landing with impact because you're thinking about other things, and that's because we're self-focused. If I'm customer-focused and I have a, a, a trait of empathy, my first conversation is going to be about you, where you're going, what you want to achieve, and what your struggles are. And then if I have something that I would like you to do, then I present it into that context. So that's where it falls down. It's not because it was baked in on purpose. It's because people were operating from the wrong mindset, and therefore they were creating unintended consequences. So where does this, this is what I'm sitting here thinking as you're saying all of that. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just kind of picking a few sure. pieces of it apart. I uh, I started my business career in the 80s and gone through the 90s, 2000s, blah blah blah. So I've just dated myself. I could tell you're a good-looking dude, but you're you probably got a few years on you too. We call it maturity. We don't call it age, by the way. And, I call it uh, wisdom. <laughs> wisdom. There we go. We'll call it wisdom. 
And I was actually thinking there were two things that were crossing my mind, Ron, and I'm going to I'm going to say them and then let you address both of them. First thing I was thinking was, can someone learn empathy? Can we really teach it? Or is it something that someone just hasn't developed? So that's one thought. I'm hold that, and I'm gonna, and then I want, and then I started going back to how how some of this has evolved. Because if we go back and we talk leadership, we talk sales cultures from you know 70s, 80s into the 90s. Uh, we even talk leadership. We're gonna talk leadership and all in just a moment when we go into over velocity mindset, and because I've got some questions about generational leadership. But how has empathy, how do we integrate empathy into, uh, you know, Joe or Sally C-level? How do we get them to get it if they don't get it? And then also, how has it been complicated because in the 80s, we came from the greed is good mindset where we just hammered out uh, results, 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 didn't really get involved with a lot of that. So I threw two things at you, but I know you can handle it. Give some response to those uh, thoughts that came to my mind. Right. So I don't think the emphasis on the need for results has changed from the 80s to now. Empathy is how you get to those results that's changed. Okay. So in the 80s, and now I'm getting into a leadership conversation because it's kind of leading to that. Um, in the 80s, it was more autocratic leadership. Do as I say, here's what we're going to do. And then we went through a transformation where people started doing more teams approaches and they started doing consensus and collaboration. And now empathy is really important for a couple of reasons. You know, as the people that grew up like you and I did in those 80s, and it was autocratic and all that, people today are doing things because of the way they want to do it, not because of what you want. End the story, especially the millennials and the younger generations. You know, that's why we had the mass resignation that's why companies now are facing resistance of getting people to come back to work in the offices. You know, people found newfound freedom with the extra time from commuting. They have better lifestyles. And so there's a there's a pull and take happening right now in corporate America as to where we're going to wind up down the road when everything is said and done and what the new norm looks like. OK, but a part of that is because of the empathy and because people are not doing it because you're saying you have to do this. People don't have to do anything. Now, it's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of what we do in society is also driven by political scenarios. And I'm not having a political conversation here, but there is definitely a change happening in the political horizon where it's going back from the empathy to more of a, um, um, you know, restricted, if you will. Um, and what people can or can't do based on what happened last night, you know, with the Supreme Court that came out and so forth. So that's an interesting phenomenon. We'll see how that plays out, you know, in terms of leadership and everything else down the road. But in today with the younger generation and so forth, and, and it's also empathy is really important because it really gets to the heart of the matter of influence. It's understanding how someone sees the world versus how you see the world. That's critical. And I can tell you right now that I see it different than my 28-year-old daughter. My 28-year-old daughter is an amazing individual. She's in a high-paying job. She worked her way for it. She left because she couldn't get promoted, got more experience, came back. And, you know, she's doing really well. Let's put it that way, okay? But now 
she might be taking, I don't know, she might be looking to do something else. There's a, uh, I mean, she loves her job, but who knows, you know, I, people are not expected to stay at their jobs for uh, 30 years like we did when we started in the 80s. You know, you got a job at IBM, you stayed there for life. People are expecting to change jobs within 10 years. I mean, 10 times within a, within a career. So I can I can really see my daughter calling me up one day and saying, hey, I decided to do something different. Not because I know she's going to. I have no clue what she's doing. She hasn't said it. But she thinks differently than I do. And if we don't start understanding what they value and how they think, then how can we create a bridge that will create influence with them? Now, we're talking generational differences, but it's no different with a customer or an employee. We got to find out what's important to them, where they're trying to go, and it helps you. I'll give you an example. Um, I have a long-term retainer client manufacturer, and um, I'm in the CEO's office one day. And one of the production supervisor comes storming in. He's really upset. And I go, what's wrong? And he goes, damn so-and-so. He's on his damn cell phone. And I said, okay, so what's the problem? He goes, well, he's late. And he's making everybody else late. I said, so what did you do? He says, I went back there and told him, get off the damn cell phone. And what did the guy say? And he goes, why should I? Everybody else is on a cell phone. And what did you do? He says, I got angry. And I said, get off the damn cell phone. And I stormed away. I said, how well did that serve you? Now, this guy was an older guy, and I guarantee you that worker was probably a younger worker. But even if he was the same age, he probably could have still responded the same way because that supervisor was not communicating with him with empathy. He was communicating from self-focus what he wanted with no regard to what the other person wanted. And when I say that, I don't mean you should give up your ideals and what you want. I want you to get what you want. The question is, how do you do that? So I role-played what happened just with him. He played the, the welder, and I played him. And after a while, he started laughing because I was just repeating the answers he gave me. And he goes, stop. He goes, I would have told myself where to go to if I was listening to that conversation. I said, so what do we know about the guy? He wants to be a master welder. All right, so what does it take to be a master welder? Well, two years of having great quality and on-time performance. How's his quality? Perfect. That's why we love him. How's the on-time performance? Well, in this one job, he's late. I said, okay, so you need to get him on time. Right. So forget the cell phone. It's the wrong thing you're negotiating. Go out there and say, hey, you know, you want to become a master welder, right? He goes, yeah. And this is the conversation he had. So he asked the question. The guy goes, yeah. And he goes, you know, you need two things. You need quality and, and you need a timely performance. Your quality is perfect. That's why we love you. But in this one job, we're 20 minutes behind. What do you think we can do to get you back on time so you stay on that path for becoming a master welder? And within seconds, that same person who yelled at the supervisor said, huh, maybe here's a couple of ideas that I could do. And he started coming up with suggestions. And before you know it, the thing was resolved. What's the difference? The difference is the supervisor still got what he wanted, but he did it by understanding what was important to that individual and presenting it in context. Can't do that without empathy. How do we do that? Listen, I know, I mean, let's just go ahead and bracket some people. Let's call it age 55 and up, you know, tail end of the baby boomers and all of that. 
they look at a lot of the generation and they use words like lazy and blah, blah, blah. My, my kids are the same age as you just brought up your daughter. I've got a 28-year-old son and my daughter is about to have a uh, – our grandchild's 30. And, you know, at times I look and I, I, I don't quite grasp what the mindset is, but I know I need to have empathy and understand more. I think it's vice versa too. I think that for them to succeed, they need to understand and tap into some of the resources that the generations like like us have. But give some practical tips. How do we do that, Ron? Well, I think empathy you need, period. I don't care if you're talking to the same generation as you are or a different generation. Now, but, you know, I, I had to learn it. I mean, I was very self-focused because of what I grew up with and how I had to protect myself when I was younger and all that stuff. But, and, you know, and in the eighties, it served me well when I sold. But, um, you know, as I got into management and started this career, it didn't serve me well as, you know, things change in the world. You know, when you go to becoming a, um, a uh, speaker uh, and a consultant, you know, you even have to be better at influence because people don't have to do anything you're saying. And usually when you're making a recommendation, you're asking people to change a little bit and change has pain. Okay. So you even have to be even better at empathy. But then I looked at my personal life, you know, as we're rounding 2000 and my daughter was six at the time and then we're getting, she's getting older and I have the same generational differences that every generation has with the younger ones. And I started practicing it, you know, and I don't do it all the time. I still fall back on my sword. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when my daughter's saying something to me, I say, well, you know, what makes you see it that way? You know, how is your vision? Tell me what you're looking at. And that's not the words I use, but you get the point. So you have to practice it. You have to try it. And it's a good thing to try no matter who you're talking to because it's only going to help you understand other people better. And when you do, you can create a way forward that will take into account what both of you need. In fact, we've gotten so far away from that over the last 20 years. That's why there's such a political divide that's really hurting this country right now. And of all of us with practice low empathy, you don't have to agree with other people. But if you just take the time to hear their perspective and hear what is behind it, A, you'll get to know them better, which will lower the tension. And B, you'll have some ideas maybe on how you both can move forward. And we have to do that as society. We're hurting because we're not doing that. Yeah, I think we do, too. I think you mentioned the autocratic ways of the 80s. It's almost like we're autocratic today with our ideas and thoughts. We want to tell people, <laughs> dang it, I'm going to tell you, Ron, what my views are, my thoughts are on you know controversial things. Instead of, it's been fascinating to me doing this podcast. We're now almost three years in. It forces me to ask questions yeah. and then listen and I'm kind of a speaker type also, but dang, I, I mean, I even have uh, my son is my, um, you know, the editor engineer. I have him track ha what percentage of time I'm talking versus the guest, because I never want to, as I'm doing right now, take over the conversation. You know, it's funny when you just said that um, I was uh, hired. It was a huge contract. It was just under seven figures. And or eight figures, and um, they I wrote a book at that time called The Titan Principle. And uh, this major medical company wanted to titanize Salesforce. There was a merger, two disparate cultures came together, and uh, it was the first time they brought it ready together. It was 500 people meeting in Vegas. Um, they hired me to keynote and do some breakouts. 
And it went really well. And then um, they brought me down four months later to give my findings and recommendations of what I saw at the conference. And um, and they said, bring your credentials. You know, we want to do more work with you. So I knew what they needed for sales. So I started talking about key accounts selling the VP who controlled $2 billion at stock. And he goes to his five subordinates. If he talks about key account selling, what are they going to do? I said, okay, he also need major account. After three times, I decided, you know what? They're not buying what I'm saying, even though they asked me to come down here. So I closed the PowerPoint, and I said, I'm confused. You asked me to come down and give you my, my, my credentials. I'm doing it. Yet you're telling me that what I'm here to talk to you about, you're not interested in. And then that VP taught me a couple of amazing at life lessons. The first thing he said is, Ron, unlike every other client you have, we bring people in like you to come in and speak to our people. And do we ever follow through in what you do? No. So you become the flavor of the month. I have a $2 billion merger. I can't afford a flavor of the month. I said, okay. And then he said this. He goes, I need to unify this merger. It's disparate right now. There's only one person who I know wrote this book. And it's called The Titan Principle. It's a really good book, and it's a process. And that's when it clicked in me, and I realized he wasn't buying me to speak or consult. He wasn't buying me to present The Titan Principle for the sake of The Titan Principle. He was looking to bring The Titan Principle in as a unifying process that would make his merger work. So when I got to understand the real motivations behind it, it allowed us to get into a really good conversation. And then I said, okay, so what do you suggest? He goes, well, I suggest we bring you into Chicago and we have all our management team meet you there, but I need you to do one thing. And I go, what's that? He goes, you're a speaker. I go, yeah, don't speak. I go, what? He goes, look, if we want to change people and change a way, we need to engage them. So create the program, but make sure they're really engaged. And so we identified what the four key areas that we had to address in that meeting for two days. And then simply I created a module on each area, broke them into teams. We processed it. Bottom line, like you just said it a minute ago, they did most of the talking. I did most of the facilitating. The funny thing is when the evaluations came in, they called me the best speaker they ever heard. And you didn't say so, much. So, I didn't, well, I mean, I said something, I was presenting the modules, but they did most of the talking in hours, you know. But the point is, they were having their issues addressed. That's why they felt it so valuable. And that's why they agreed to go with the bigger contract. Hmm. Yeah, and it, because, and uh, gosh, it goes back to what we were saying. Um, first of all, you listening to what the real issue was. Yeah, and, uh, and less defined listening. How, how, yeah, go ahead and do that because I have a, I have a follow-up question to that. Define Sorry. listening. What is listening? Hearing is when you take the word someone says and you try to construct it in your world as how you see it. Listening is when you put your world aside and you're hearing the words from their world. Mm. So how tough is that for someone who is a pro speaker? I mean, you've got credentials as a speaker spoken in front of people as I, I think I read you were the president of the National Speakers Association and um I love Nito Kubain wrote the uh wrote the um forward to your to your book my daughter went to High Point University graduated from there so I've met Nito I actually got a personal tour of the college 
at uh, High Point when she, before she went there. So how, how tough is it for people that have a gift of speaking to really, really actively listen? Because I've seen some people where they can't do one or the other. I mean, they can't shut off the speaking because they're so good at it. Um, have you had to deal with that at all or observed other people dealing with that? I deal with it every day. Well, first of all, in my own business, and I'm human, so sometimes I don't, and when I don't, I get in trouble. But when you're on stage, you're constantly listening to that audience. You're constantly reading that, or at least you're trained to do that as a professional speaker. You're, you know, you, you know things that work, you know things that don't work, and when things are a little bit off or it's quiet here or something's happening there or there's energy in the room or whatever, you have to do it on the fly and address what's going on in that room so people know that you're present and relevant. Now, I can tell you that I can do the same. I do the same speech, you know, the same, like we have three or four speeches, you know, so I do them several times over. Even though it's the same topic, I never give it the same way. I mean, I got the same agenda. I got the same stories, but the actual words are different sometimes because of how I read the audience, what I might concentrate on more versus what I may not, based on who the audience is and so forth. That's listening. That's reading an audience. No different than if you do it one-on-one with somebody. Yeah. And and so so the adjustment, I mean, it, listen, it goes back to, uh, if, if anyone's not picking up on the theme of this, it's to be, it's to have empathy and to listen. Now, I want to jump. I want to jump in. This is a little bit of a pivot, but I think it ties a lot together. When you wrote the book Velocity Mindset, I'm I'm reading. I read a lot of books. I, I, I typically try to read them before I do interviews, and I go through a handful of books a week, typically, sometimes really quickly. But I'm sitting there, and I and I read your background, and I started reading, and and I expected something that was sales leadership oriented. Now, what I got was a little bit different. And I'm going to tell you what I got. And I want you to tell me if it was intentional or if maybe I just read it wrong or something like that. I got leadership, self-help, working on yourself, um, mindset, obviously. Um, And so I, I I guess my expectation was a little different. You know, I just kind of glanced at your resume, started reading the book, and I went, huh. This is not necessarily a sales, not really a sales even culture type book. What were the thoughts when you were beginning this book? Did I did I read it wrong, or were you trying to put a lot of pieces together to bring a lot of these things all in one place? No, you read it right, and that was the intention. But the, the reason for it is because that's what's involved if people are going to be part of a winning culture. If you really want to improve your performance in whatever you're doing in life, we all create obstacles for ourselves that prevent us moving forward. It could be stories that we tell ourselves, stories that um, I can't do this or I can't do that or this customer's never going to buy this or this customer's never going to agree to this or this employee will never do that. And then we get stopped because of those stories. So we have to ask ourselves, what's creating that story? And the good news is if a story serves you well, keep it. But if it doesn't, whoever wrote that story can change it. It's as simple as that. The problem is stories are fueled with emotion. A good story will be positive emotion pushing you forward. A negative story could be holding you back. So if you don't understand, like if you get triggered when people say things to you, or a lot of, we all do this, we create stories whenever someone says something to us, 
or does something, we create a story of what it means. And you know what? 80% of the time we're wrong. But yet we're making decisions based off of that. And then we want to know why someone didn't buy into what we were saying or whatever. That's the reason why I brought it all together. If we're really going, and, and one of the pre- hidden premises of the book was, you know, we called it, you know, leadership. My my premise was everybody is a leader. You don't have to be a manager. We lead our lives. We lead our daily lives. We lead our families. We make decisions. We're all leaders. And the question is, are you sitting there acting as a victim of circumstance because these are the reasons you can't because of these obstacles? Or are you acting as a leader? who goes about asking the right questions to find the answers they need so that they can push forward. Mm-hmm. That was the intent of the book. So, so let's, 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 I've got some notes here. I'm going to, depending on how much time we have, I'm going to actually ask sure. you to respond to some things, but the, the title, the velocity mm-hmm. mindset, first of all, I love the word velocity. I'm an engineer. I love growth. I love speed. And I love the word mindset. Bringing those two together is very unique. What uh, What's the background on the title? So when I was done with the presidency of NSA in 2014, June, I had nine surgeries, mostly on my back. So Tiger Woods had one level fused. I had nine levels fused. So I spent quite a few months, you know, down and out. You know, and you think about your life at that time, I was 57. You think about all your successes, and I had some really good ones. And then you think about the things you didn't get there. And I analyzed it. I realized, well, you know, the bottom line is, is that I, I didn't do it because I thought I couldn't do it or whatever. And I was holding myself back. At the same time, my clock is ticking. I'm on the back nine. Now I'm probably in the back four. You know, I'm 65. And, you know, you better get going and whatever's stopping you, find a way to get through it if you still want to do those things. So timing and, and urgency was the name of the game for me. But then I also realized a lot of other people in the same boat. A lot of people wish they did certain things and didn't get there. So when I think, when I mentioned the word velocity, Tim, the first word that comes to your mind is for velocity. Speed. It's going. Speed. It's moving. Exactly. Yeah, fast. And that's what most people think it is. But that's not velocity. If all you think is speed, then you'll get burnout because you go fast, 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 fast. And like I said, that day you're working so hard and you didn't move the needle. Real velocity, the physics definition, is speed with direction. Direction is the key. Direction, to me, is our purpose, where we're going. That that drives our decision-making process and what we decide to do, can't do. That drives our prioritization of tasks. And that means that we need to move from a task-oriented basis to a purpose-oriented basis. When we live on a daily basis on purpose, we're going to make better decisions in our lives, and we will accomplish a lot more. That's true velocity. And my mission right now is to make sure that people have an idea of what their purpose is and are they doing to live out that purpose so that they can feel fulfilled. That's something that's come up for me because as we get older, we also need more significance. Now, look, it's still about sales. It's still about leadership for managers. But there is that self-help bent where we're saying if you really want to be a better leader, manager, salesperson, are you looking inside of yourself to see what's holding you back and what you can do differently? That's it. Mm, I like the subtitle. You know, just having just written a book, I know how important subtitles are, and sometimes publishers and all, they want us to 
subtitle it to kind of spread the nets and let people understand a little bit more about it. How leaders eliminate resistance, gain buy-in, and achieve better results faster. <laughs> so let me share with you this There's technology. A lot there. There's a lot there. Let, let me share with you what goes into that title, okay? You need someone who's going to grab someone's attention. That's the word velocity. And I gave it to 10 CEOs when we first came up with it, and they all loved it. It was an action word, and half of them had an idea what I was talking about. Half of them I didn't have an idea, but they were energized, and it leads to the reaction you want from a title. Tell me more. That's what the title does. And then we had mindset, because as you can tell, everything we're talking about is how you look at things, how you – how your mind is, you know, observing and also how your mind is operating because that leads to your decisions. Okay. What it doesn't tell you are the outcomes you can get from that. So that subtitle is nothing but the outcomes you can expect, how to eliminate resistance to your ideas, get buy-in and achieve better results. You know, when we came out with a book, we're kind of thinking like, who wouldn't want that? So that's how we came up with those uh, two titles. Sure. So you've written a number of other books. How does this one compare, relate? How is it different from uh, the other books? And I have not been able to read those. So this is my only book I've read from Ron. So, uh, right. So uh, Lead, Sell, and Get Out of the Way. Sure. Lead, Sell, Get Out of the Way was the book before Velocity Mindset did really well. I'm still doing well, still making um, royalty checks even 14 years later. Um, But that was a real sales book. And uh, I, I want to save part of that to the last question you had because it goes to the question that you're going to ask me at the end. But it really gets into how do you uh, – the types of questions you ask, you know, how do you position yourself powerfully in front of your customers and so forth. And uh, people who read that book love it. it it's for sales and it's for leaders. Uh, the, the velocity mindset is uh, more of a holistic approach to influence. Um, a holistic approach to uh, getting people to support you in what you want. The bottom line, whether you're a leader or a salesperson, you can only go so far through your own efforts, but you can go a lot farther through the efforts of others. And so that's what we get into and how you engage people with the neuroscience findings that we've got, you know, to release certain hormones or certain hormones you have to understand about, and you do have control over those. So do you accept that control as a leader? And then do you understand how it, what's involved in engagement and how can you engage people better so that you can get them thinking about what you want them to think about? That's the difference between the, the leads will get out of the way is an actual how to with specific questions. Uh, velocity mindset is also a how to, but it's more, um, on a, on a, on a bigger scale engagement and, uh, understanding how people tick. Yeah, that was, that was kind of my impression. It was kind of bigger picture, kind of moving up to the, maybe taking in the entire C-suite or the entire leadership uh, team as opposed to specifically the sales uh, organization. But, but, but make no mistake, a lot, that book came from a lot of the work we did in sales, um, coaching and speaking with clients. You know, we had some great results. We had one client that changed the way an industry bought. It used to be price uh, for a supply agreement every three years, and it had to be the lowest price. And when we got done repositioning them with that client, they actually came out with a $200 million 10-year negotiated agreement. And that came out of the velocity mindset, that process. Mm. 
Very good. So, so who would you say, who's the book for? If you were to say this book is for blank, who would it be for? Well, it's definitely for salespeople, entrepreneurs, and, and managers. But it's for anybody who wants to have control over their destiny, wants to make sure that they are working on purpose, wants to make sure that they're not preventing any obstacles themselves that are or creating obstacles that are going to hold them back. And it's for anybody who wants to move forward. You know, it's funny who, who, who would read a book. When I came out with Leads, I'll get out of the way. I got a beautiful letter from a retired professor, I think at Virginia Tech, who said, I wish I read your book when I was an active teacher because I would have been a better teacher. And that was from that pure sales book, Leads, so I'll get out of the way. Yeah, and, and like we said earlier, I really kind of saw that this was more leadership mindset and some of the highlights. But sales, but sales people are leaders too. Think about it. They lead customers to a conversation. Well, the thing that I love that you said earlier that I think we say pretty often here, and, and I've shared this story before. I, uh, when I told someone that I had a leadership podcast, I was talking to, uh, uh, it, it was a mature woman. I was about to say older woman, mature woman. And, uh, and she goes, Oh, I'm not a leader. And, and this is a woman that was, uh, sort of the head of her family took care of two um, health challenge, her husband and a sibling that was health challenged. And they had roughly 50 acres of property that they oversaw. And I'm sitting here going, she's telling me she's not a leader. And I'm sitting here thinking she's more of a leader than many <laughs> of the people that I interact with that have leader out beside their name. So I love what you said that in really most aspects, especially today, Ron, there are people that are in leadership influence roles that probably don't believe they are because they don't have the title, but they, right. but they need to read this stuff, correct? Yeah, because, you look, we're all leaders, period. Now, do you live your life like a leader? That's the question, okay? You don't need a title to be, quote, unquote, a leader, all right? There are actually people and organizations that are considered to be better leaders than the managers. Yeah. So, and the woman that you're talking about, I applaud her. She's a huge leader because think about this. She has to coordinate the care for her husband. She's got the 50 acres that they're dealing with. So she has to coordinate that. She's got the rest of the family. She's got to coordinate. I mean, how is that not being a leader? I, I, I agree with you. And so I, I guess one of the things that we're both agreeing at is that if you're listening in going, ah, this doesn't apply to me. No, absolutely. It does. Now, one of the things you bring up in the book, I'm going to read something that, and I want you to respond to it, is you discuss some of the, I'll call it downfall, but some of the mistakes that leaders make. And one of the things that grieves me, and this is where I go from optimistic to pessimistic. I look around at the horizon and I see leaders that might call themselves leaders, but they don't walk in the way a leader should walk. Yes. And here's a statement you make. I'm just going to kind of read this. I don't know what page is on because it's from my digital. It's from my iPad here. But you say, unfortunately, people in positions of authority can talk a good game, but too often fail to walk the talk. They fall into the trap of do as I say, not as I do. Ron, I unfortunately see that more than I wish I did in the political structure business all along. And and I think that's one of the reasons why some people have a little bit of a sour mindset about that word leadership. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So, look, 
One of the things that employees look for is what you're doing. You can say anything you want, but they're not listening to that. They're watching your actions. If you are doing your actions, then they'll support you. Just give you an example. You know, CEOs will say to me, hey, I want my people accountable to the organization. How can you make them accountable, more accountable? I said, you can't. I said, what do you mean? There is no such thing as accountability to an organization. There's an accountability to one's promises. And, and the organizational accountability is nothing more than the sum total of all the individual accountability. Now, as individuals, we're the most important thing to ourselves in the world, right? So if I make a promise to myself and saying, hey, if I'm smoking, I'm going to quit smoking, and I don't keep that promise, how can you expect me to keep a promise I make to you if I'm the most important thing? So it starts and ends with the individual promises. Now, here's where a lot of people go off. I read a book called Healing Back Pain with Dr. John Sarno, and he got into the mind a lot why people have back pain when they shouldn't have. And he developed some traits that are in the mind, such as goodism and perfectionism, things that we can't perfectionism. We, a lot of us are dealing with perfectionism for whatever was in our lifetimes way back when or whatever that formed us who we are today. But going for perfectionism sometimes will drive you to pain because when you're trying to be so perfect, right, and you actually want to be more perfect when your mind it's close to your subconscious, and it doesn't like where it's going, so it creates pain. All right? And he found out that one of the things that led to that is perfectionism and goodism. What's goodism? Goodism is where we want to help people. We want to help people so much because we feel good or it helps us accomplish something inside of us. The problem with goodism, it leads to people making a lot of promises because they want you to know you're on quarter. Okay, so I'm going to give you the, the business next year. Give me a price decrease now, and I'll give you all the volume for next year. And they're saying in the best interest, but they know they can't really, you know, guarantee that. But now you make that decision. You go to your company, and you tell them, here's what we're going to get. They lower the price, and then all of a sudden next year you're not getting the volume, so now you feel aggrieved because that person made a promise and didn't keep. Your trust starts going down. You start getting a little angry, and that relationship sours anyway. So as a leader in life, we have to understand that our word is our bond. And if we're making promises that we we mean wholeheartedly to keep, or we're saying those promises because we want to let people know we're in the corner, but if we know we can't really keep them, or there may be things in the way, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for failure. That's creating an obstacle that takes away your velocity. And and unfortunately, that gets magnified with the world we're in, and people begin questioning leadership in general. Exactly. Which is, which is tough. Exactly. So if, if, a, if a manager says, you know, and I've had that with uh, some clients, you know, when they make promises on pay or they make promises on certain things and they don't do it or they don't come – those employees are waiting for that to be figured out. And when it's not being figured out on a timely basis, they start getting antsy, and rightfully so. It's not just about pay. It's anything that you promise, okay? Um, our word is so important. You know, you can lose your family. I hope you don't. You can lose your money. You can lose your house. You can even lose your health. I hope you don't do that. But if you have one thing left intact, which is your word, you can always find someone to take a gamble on you a second time. Yeah. And people can see through that stuff, too. It's not as if you're not fooling anyone. 
You may right. be so, fooling so, yourself, right? Right. So let's go back to how you started this part with, you know, a CEO or somebody, you know, says do as I say, not as I do. You know, so they want accountability, let's say. Well, now that same CEO is making promises and they're not holding themselves accountable to keep them. What are you saying as the employee? Well, why should I keep my promise to the CEO? Yeah. Why should I, why should I put my cell phone down just because you're saying I need to put my cell phone down? Going back to your example earlier of the guy. It's like, hey, you don't do what you say. Why do I have to do it too? It's a, and it's a vicious cycle. Well, they're saying, why should I worry about you if you're not worried about me? Mm. Yeah, that's good. So there's another concept that you brought up in the book I want to, I want to get to before we start wrapping up here. And it's something that's perplexed or it's kind of bothers me when I see just the world we're in. It's just how busy people are and people rarely slow down to stop and think. I think you use the word pause to visualize and and, and see success and see things in a different light. Uh, If I'm rewording that wrong, let me know. But you, you use the word pause a number of times. Tell me more about that. Oh, everybody thinks pause is the is the antithesis of velocity, and it's not. Yeah. Sometimes you'll gain a lot more velocity if you pause, because insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It's getting the same miserable results. Why aren't you pausing to figure out what we're doing? An example that I use in the book was my first sales job was selling copiers in 1980. Now, at that time, there was a major revolution in copiers. They went from a liquid toner that got all over people's clothes to the dry bond toner, a little cartridge in and out, so simple. And it printed 15 crisp copies per minute. So Royal Business Machines is seducing me on that 15 copy a minute uh, copier. And I said, where's the collator? Oh, it'll be here in, a, in, in six months. Where's the duplicate? It'll be here in six months. Well, that stuff didn't come for two years. So the first three months, I'm going out knocking on doors, speaking to office managers, and I'm here selling copiers. And they say, well, can you do what the big Xerox machine does on the third floor? Can it duplicate? Not yet. Can it collate? Not yet. We'll come back when it can. Well, after the door hit my butt quite a few times and it was getting black and blue, I decided to pause. I lived in New Jersey at the time. So I decided to have a board meeting with me, myself, and I. And where do you go for a board meeting? You go to the diner. So I went to the diner and I said, you know, and this is where the power of the pause is. Remember. We create stories based on what's happening to us. I was not selling copiers. What were some of the stories I was creating? I stink. I'll never be a salesperson. I can't sell this. I can't sell a collator, a duplicator. Those are all stories. If you don't pause, they create this emotion where now you're operating out of emotion and you cannot do business out of emotion unless you're using it as a as a uh, negotiation ploy. But the moment you sit down and you start thinking about the end result and what's going on, that emotion lifts us. Because now you clear your brain so that you can think of it creatively. So I started asking myself at that table at the diner, all right, so what's going on? I'm selling a copy. What's wrong? They compare me to zeros. I can't compete. Well, what are you really selling? I'm not a copier. It's really a part of the communication process. So maybe I should have that conversation. Remember, if you don't like the reaction, change your action. So I went on the next call, 
And I said to the office manager, would you agree with me that copier is nothing more but part of your communication process? And she goes, absolutely. I said, when it comes to that, what are your biggest challenges? She goes, oh, my God. And it was like all of a sudden I was a therapist and she was on my couch. Can we talk? And she goes, Sally or Jim's on the first floor. They're going to make one copy. By the time they walk to the staircase and chit-chat with everybody, go upstairs, and then wait online behind all these big behemoth jobs. Then they make the one copy and make the return trip. It could take them up to two hours for that one copy. I said, wow, how often does that happen? She goes, try the equivalent of two full-time employees. I said, well, how would you like them back? She goes, how are you going to give them back to me? I said, look, I'm not here to compete with uh, Xerox. It's a great copy. Keep it. I'm here to fill in your gaps. And so what I suggest is you don't buy one. You buy three. One for every floor. It's a minimal expense compared to that big machine upstairs. But you'll get those one or two copy jobs done faster. People will be working more, and you'll get those two full-time employees. And she bought three units that day. The first three I ever sold for that company. And that's how I started selling after that. Now selling multiple units each and every time. What changed? Copy didn't change. It was still limited by its functionality. The only thing that changed was my viewpoint of what was happening and deciding to do one different action. Would never have happened if I didn't pause, let the emotion lift, and think about it differently. Mm. Yeah, you make some great points about that. And one of the things that I love, it it really fits into a lot of the theme that we talk about here. Because I, I think it's sometimes difficult for us to define really what success is if we just keep, we're busy, 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 just kind of churning it out. But that pause kind of allows for that. And you, and you address success a few other times. Kind of one of my almost final questions, I've got a couple things here, is I want to ask you, in, in the world we're in today, how should we be defining success? I was going to ask you specifically for you, but I want to, I want to know with your viewpoint, how do we need to define success? Because I, I actually think it's changed a good bit, but what do you say? How do we I don't that? think that's, I don't think that there's any one definition for success. What I find is successful, you may not find successful. So I would just change that question is how do, how do the people you're working with define success? And are you, do you know that so that you can help them succeed? Because if you look at a manager's job, a manager's job is nothing more than helping his people become successful. And each and every one of them will define success differently. Yeah. So one of the things that was really good in the book, you, you talk about a few personal situations that you went through. I think it was the health of your mother, and, and I think it might have been your father. And, and also you shared a good bit about you, even your personal health. I don't know if you want to share about one of those, too, but one of the words we use here is having to redefine success, maybe when we're either forced or we intentionally change what success means. I don't know if you want to share about one of those or anything, but what's a time where Ron has had to redefine how he measured success or what success meant to him? Okay, so um, 1988. It was actually the reason I started my business, but before I actually started the business, my dad was terminally ill, diabetes, heart failure, kidney failure, legs started getting amputated, really bad scene. My mother was a senior vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank, world-renowned economist, traveled the globe. She had all the help from my dad at the house, but what she didn't do was take care of herself up here. She didn't process what was going on. 
till one day it got too much for her and she passed out of the wheel of the car, four blocks from home. Car jumps up the curb, severs a light pole, the jagged edge punctures the gas tank of the car, the car catches fire. This is right in front of a Porsche dealership of all places. Salesperson and a customer come flying out. They drag my mother out in flames. The car blows and it takes down the entire Porsche dealership. In an instant, I had both parents near death. Now look, I was an EMT at that time. I rode ambulance for, uh, well, I was retired at that time because of my back injury, but I was an EMT. I know how to deal with emergencies, but when it's your own flesh and kin, forget about how you know how to deal with emergencies. Your emotions are just getting the worst of you. I identified myself to Fairlawn police because I knew them. I said, go to Hackensack Meg. We have no idea if she's dead or alive. I get there and she had third degree burns and 30% of her body. This was a stoic woman who fought in the war of independence for Israel, commanded a battalion of 2000 women. And here she's pleading with me to let her die because the pain is so great. So I'm sitting there by myself. It's all on my hands. My brother was somewhere else. And I said, okay, what do I do? And I said, I have no clue. And I said, well, what got you successful in business up to this point? And there were two questions that I always used. And I used those questions for that event. First question is, what would success look like for me? Second question is, do my actions support that? So when I asked myself what success looks like for me, it came immediately. It came right from here. When it comes to your heart, it's coming fast. If you're thinking about it, you're in the wrong place. Success for me was simple. Both parents had to survive. I did not want to live the rest of my life that one didn't make it because my efforts wasn't good enough. So I said, okay, so now what are the actions? What are you going to do? And I made a promise to myself. I got a lot of people coming after me. The, the bank, doctors on both sides, lawyers and competing interests. And I said, you know what? I don't have time for anything unless it's germane to keeping both parents alive. If it's germane, I'm going to talk about it. We're going to deal with it. If it's not, come back to me in a month from now. And that's how I lived the next few days, the, le- the next couple of months. And what happened was, as a result, my mother had three skin graft op- operations. She recouped in about six months and went back to work, and my dad managed to hang on for another year. All right? The only reason it was there is because I was able to get clarity as to what I needed to do and what the purpose was. I let the purpose drive me. In an emergency, if you don't do that, everything is driving you. Now, if you can't figure out what you want for success, then sometimes back your way into it by say, list what you don't want to have happen. Because what you success is really the opposite of what you don't want to have happen. So do it that way if you have resistance from yourself and thinking about it. But what does success look like to you? It can be different for everybody. What's important? What's the success that's going to give you the passion to keep moving forward and figuring it out when you, when you keep running into dead ends? And then make sure that your actions support that success. I love that. You know, because what you what I just heard was we tied a few things together. You paused to ask yourself a couple of questions in the midst of chaos. I mean, and and listen, a lot of people say they're in chaos based on what's going on in the world, what's going on around them. But you pause to go back to a main point that you bring up in the book and it gained some clarity and gave purpose. So I believe that is a great exclamation point to this conversation, Ron. What I'd love for you to do now is tell people where they can find the book, where they can connect with you. We'll include it all in the notes, but where can people find Ron Carr? All right, so the Velocity Mindset, you can go straight to Amazon if you want. It's the best place to get it with a discount. If you also go to VelocityMindset.com, VelocityMindset.com, 
There's a couple of things. Number one, we'll ask for your email because we release videos every Friday that I do in Velocity, so you'll stay in the conversation. And then you'll also be given the opportunity to take a leadership assessment. Test your thing in the five key areas of leadership we wrote about in the book. Rate yourself, but then we give you tips and ideas on how you can move forward immediately. And then there's also a link for the book there if you so choose. Very good. We'll include all that in the notes. Ron, we're Seek, Go, Create. Going to give you one word out of those three you can pick. Create. Create. And why? Well, it's the theme for Lead, Sell, Get Out of the Way. And, and the theme was don't compete, create. Everybody's so worried about competition. Everybody's so worried about what the competition's doing. And then all they do is create the same thing and there's no difference. And that leads customers to differentiate in one way only, and that's by price. You want to uh, separate yourself from the competition? Create. Fill the gaps that are not currently being filled now. Concentrate on on giving solutions to the problems that they still have. There will be no competition. Create. Uh, That's beautiful. And I love uh, having a guy with a background from New Jersey and sales. He answered the question almost before I even asked it. That was beautiful. Hey, folks, if you've listened in, I know you've enjoyed this conversation. I've read this book, Velocity Mindset. Go get your copy. Uh, Go to the places. We'll include links. Or if you want to just go with uh, the places that Ron mentioned, go check it out. I enjoyed this book. I've read it over the last couple of days. I highly recommend you get the book, connect with Ron, and uh, just learn some of the wisdom that he has shared with us here. Also, one of the big favor, I like to ask folks to take a screenshot of this, or if you're on social, checking it out, YouTube, wherever you are, share this episode. You know people that are in leadership positions. You know people that are in sales positions. You know people that need to hear the message. You know people that just need to hear that they need to pause from time to time so that they could gain some of their purpose that Ron shared with us and taught us. So make sure you do that. It's a big favor to me. I believe it'd be a big favor to Ron if you share this episode. So thanks for listening in. I appreciate it. And uh, we have new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.